1: Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, all to this new season of When Diplomacy Fails. I hope you're excited to be back. You should have listened to our previous State of the Podcast address by now. Where I talked openly and honestly about the last few years and what it means for me, now Dr. Zach. In this episode I'll be presenting 1956 to you and explaining how that PhD thesis series for patrons will work. We also announced in the last episode that the Age of Bismarck will be launching in 2024, that's this year, but first to give me some time to actually make that series we'll be drawing on projects new and old. Let's start with what is technically old for some of you, but which is brand new for most of you. Although you might know my business-like justification for returning to 1956, how do you know if it's for you? Well as far as I'm concerned, 1956's story is compelling enough to bring to everyone, with few adjustments. My research, observations and conclusions still hold up really well, so There's no need to rewrite or even re-record everything. That said, I know there can be a disconnect from what I wrote many years ago, so I've worked through the scripts and made sure everything is updated. I've also cut down some of the episode fluff and combined the content of some episodes together with this one. You may also note that the older teaser episodes for 1956 have been deleted, which should keep things nice and tidy. Just because you'll be hearing from past Zach rather than current Dr. Zack in the 1956 series, don't think I won't be eager to hear what you think. The response to 1956 was really incredible when we first launched, but I also had a fair few corrections and pieces of advice to consider, and I've tried to implement that in the newer version of this series. I should say it's not intended to serve as some kind of commentary on modern events, either in Ukraine or in Israel-Gaza. Of course, there will be parallels between Russia's authoritarian bulldozing of its neighbours and Israel's joint occupation with Britain and France to fool world opinion and conspire to make war on Egypt, but don't read too much into these echoes. If I wanted to comment on current affairs, I would bother myself to take the time and release an episode directly addressing them. But. Let's try and have a break from the bleakness that is these current events, shall we? And if that brutal honesty doesn't dispel the conspiracy theories I don't know what will. But I will enjoy returning to this era, since I believe 1956 serves as a fascinating window into a dangerous, dynamic, Cold War world. This is all to say, I'm not shoving content at you from the When Diplomacy Fails reject pile, so I hope you won't stay away simply because 1956 isn't, strictly speaking, new. There's a lot to sink our teeth into here, and if you're interested, I hope you'll listen further to the rest of this episode to see what's in store. So, the story of 1956 begins for us in New York's Times Square, where in the final minutes of 1955, 400,000 eager faces focused their gaze on the roof of the Times Tower. At 20 seconds to midnight, a ball of electric light was lowered ever so gradually from the top of the flagpole. The plan, as everyone expected, was for this magnificent contraption to become illuminated just at the right time, to signal the fact that the new year of 1956 had arrived. With eight seconds left on the clock, though, it was clear something was wrong. A faulty circuit breaker cut out the power to the display, and just as the crowds were reaching the apex of their cheering, darkness covered the tower and the awaiting crowd. A stunned gasp was let out, followed by a disappointed groan and it wasn't until 15 minutes into 1956 that the lights welcoming the new year were restored, and the technological marvel was lit up for all to see. The moment had descended into something of a farce, but the cheering went up nonetheless. Hopefully, this wasn't an omen for things to come. 150 miles north of Tokyo, during a Shinto ceremony at Yihiko Shrine, it wasn't farce, but tragedy which characterised the proceedings as a human stampede crushed to death more than a hundred unfortunate pilgrims. In Madrid, General Francisco Franco opened his New Year's address and his 18th year as Spain's dictator by insisting that the dangers that threaten the world are greater than ever. In London, Prime Minister Antony Eden gave assurances that we shall be doing everything we can to reduce tension between the nations at every time and at every opportunity. London's Times newspaper noted the need for courage in the face of upcoming crises which were undoubtedly in store for us. Many miles from London, at the pulpit of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, Reverend Martin Luther King addressed parishioners with an encouraging message to the effect that there was no better way to begin the new year than with the firm belief in a powerful God. Mindful of the fact that a boycott of the city's buses were now entering its second month, King urged his congregation to remember that root of the Christian faith, that good would triumph over evil in the end. King concluded the message by encouraging his flock in their struggle against evil. God is able, King said. Don't worry about segregation. It will die because God is against it. The French knew a thing or two about segregation as well. In their troubled Algerian possession, the white French settlers enjoyed far greater rights and freedoms than the native population, and discontent had been bubbling over for some time, both here and in Morocco. The second-last day of 1955 saw 20 rebels killed in one province of Algeria, while a French operation in a mountainous region of Morocco killed 50. If the European and Muslim populations could not find a way to live together in peace and mutual respect, commented the French Premier, then they would be condemned to die together with rage in their hearts. Not too far from these scenes, in Egypt, a guest of the Egyptian ruler was Yosep Brose Tito, who was wined and dined by Gamal Abdel Nasser, the Egyptian general turned statesman. Tito made clear in an annual message of his own, delivered from Cairo, that the people of Africa were striving to consolidate their independence, to govern themselves, while he condemned the so-called civilising mission of the Europeans as a smokescreen for imperialism and greed. Yet, the Yugoslav leader ended on a positive note, opining that an era of peaceful settlement of international problems has set in, war is being repudiated, as a means of solving disputes. Even Moscow was willing to talk of peace, as the Soviet Premier Nikolai Bulganin found it appropriate to declare during the course of his New Year's address that goodwill and mutual cooperation could make great progress towards putting an end to the Cold War. Later on in the evening of the 31st of December, Bulganin and Party First Secretary Nikita Khrushchev hosted a lavish dinner party, ...attended by over 1,200 guests. Gathering together in the Kremlin's humongous St. George Hall... ...food and drink heaved on the tables and moved freely among these leaders of Soviet society. Enthusiastic displays of dancing, of toasts in favour of peace... ...accompanied by stirring music all characterised the proceedings. Thousands of miles away in Key West, Florida... ...President Eisenhower relaxed in less excited circumstances as he recuperated following his heart attack the previous September. On that day, the US stock market nosedived as $14 billion was wiped off the Dow Jones in hours, the worst day of trading since the outbreak of World War II. In spite of his four-pack-a-day habit and the mistake of a doctor who believed the President's heart episode was only indigestion, Eisenhower survived, and he'd been instructed to take it easy by his doctor for the remainder of the year. But Eisenhower couldn't rest too easy. It was nearly election time, and he believed he had another run in him. 1956 was thus to be an important year for his political ambitions and the Republican Party he led. Eisenhower must therefore have hoped 1956 would be a comparatively quiet year in international affairs, if only he knew. Less than three years after the conclusion of the Korean War, the world remained in the grip of the two prominent ideologies, communism on the one hand and capitalism on the other. While two ideological camps remained in place, the balance between them had endured some changes since 1945. The People's Republic of China definitively arrived, Western Europe's communist parties were becoming more marginalized, and decolonization was giving fresh opportunities to the Soviets and Americans in Africa and the Middle East to spread their message and influence around. In conflict with the notions of decolonisation and fresh markets were the old ideas of empire, still clung to by the French in Algeria and the British just generally, not to mention the Soviets, which held much of Eastern Europe and Eurasia in an empire in all but name. While the decade of the 50s had been opened by the Korean War and the Cold War had seemingly come into view with that conflict, the rest of the decade often receives scant attention in favour of the more heated events of the 60s, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Kennedy Assassination, the Civil Rights Movement and the intensification of the Vietnam War, while the Soviets were distracted by revolutionary events in Prague in 1968. The narrative usually presented is that the 1950s represented a somewhat drab interlude between the heroic resistance of the 40s and the vibrant protest movements of the 60s. Even the wars which were fought, such as Korea between 1950 to 53, ended unsatisfactorily. If this is true, then 1956 is a year which stands out defiantly from this easy classification as a period of time lit up with revolution. Genuine political change, political and military humiliation, grand conspiracy and terrible, bitter tragedy. It stood out to me as a watershed moment, both in the history of the Soviet Union and in the British perception of itself on the world stage. The cynical base upon which Soviet power was built was exposed. Upon brute military force alone would the Eastern satellites be kept in line. Similarly, the scales fell from the eyes of the British government when they were made painfully aware of their helplessness in the face of American economic coercion. The British Empire, for this reason, is often marked as ending once and for all in 1956, while it had ended for all practical purposes with the release of India, but 1956 was arguably the moment when the bipolar reality of world affairs was bitterly accepted. A decade and a half later, British policy reorientated itself in its successful application to the European Union, or what would become the European Union. As Winston Churchill had always hoped, Britain could lead the third group of the world by empowering and partaking in deals and agreements with its European neighbours. The EU application represented the culmination of this policy, but the Suez Crisis was also the moment that this European bubble burst, but in a different way. Britain and its European friends would not be able to pursue aggressive independent policies without consulting their American allies first, especially when the consequences of such actions impacted everyone and drew attention away from other crises. However, London, Paris, Bonn and Rome were more than welcome to band together to meet the challenge posed by the Soviets and by their East European counterparts by devising a better system than their neighbours behind the Iron Curtain. Accepting this meant accepting that the ship had sailed on a solely British preeminence in European affairs and this was a difficult pill for the British to swallow, which in many respects they still haven't swallowed. No less difficult were the many French pills which would have to be swallowed, especially as its former mortal enemy in the Germans became fastened ever more tightly to both NATO and the Western European Union. 1956 is thus a year with many layers, but it's also a year of two main story arcs which overlap and conflict with one another in several fascinating ways. It is my task to unwrap this year and bring its figures, events and issues to you. I want you to grasp why it mattered, and above all I want you to be interested and captivated by what goes on in the next 30-something episodes. If you like your 20th century history, if you like your Cold War history... If you like your obscure diplomatic history, then 1956 is the series for you. In his book, 1956, The World in Revolt, Simon Hall wrote that 1956 saw ordinary people all across the globe speak out, fill the streets and city squares, risk arrest, take up arms and lose their lives in an attempt to win greater freedoms and build a more just world. It was an epic contest that would transform the post-war world. High time, then, that the story of this remarkable year was told in full. High time, indeed, but we won't be telling this story in full, (laughs) ha ha, largely because our narrative will focus on two broad directions. The Soviet Union's post-Stalinist thaw and the revolts that followed, and the road to the Suez Crisis, on the other hand, and the consequences it threw up. Because of this, it's possible we'll miss elements of the story that 1956 provides, but we'll do our best. It should be emphasised, if you're unfamiliar with the formula of when diplomacy fails, politics, diplomacy and international affairs will be our primary focus. I have managed to get very interested in national revolutions and certain figures during the course of this series, but all such factors in the story will be presented in the context of the wider international picture which 1956 painted... to begin with in February 1956 the Soviet Union's leading figure Nikita Khrushchev delivered a speech in which he denounced much of what Joseph Stalin had done and he criticised heavily the concept of a cult of personality Stalin, for the record had built around himself a cult of personality so multi-layered and all-consuming but on the other hand so ridiculous and nauseating that it had come to dominate his life and rule. Communism or Marxism or even Leninist doctrine were not important to the Soviet period of Stalinism as much as Stalin himself. Stalinism can be defined and presented in different ways, but to the person of Joseph Stalin, Stalinism meant unflinching loyalty and unwavering obedience to every decree every pronouncement and every opinion of the Man of Steel. The demand for obedience and the cult Stalin built to ensure it can be explained by several factors, not least Stalin's inherent lack of legitimacy, having taken over from Lenin, a man who by no means wished to see Stalin succeed him. But Stalin did succeed him, and he went on to craft a system of state control, of stunning leader worship and of institutionalised terror on a scale unprecedented in Russia, or in the satellites which came to border Moscow after 1945. Stalin's legacy was akin to a bear that Khrushchev would have to wrestle with, and because even as Khrushchev believed it was necessary to take apart the worst excesses of what Stalin had made, Khrushchev did want to preserve those parts of the system which enabled the Soviet Union to keep its satellites in check, and maintain a hold on the mantle of superpower, regardless of the consequences while policing its own people in the name of the greater good. As you could probably expect, this proved an impossibly difficult balancing act. Khrushchev, much like every other figure who was forced to succeed a formidable predecessor, stumbled, contradicted himself, and would ultimately be forced out of power by his underlings and rivals. This is because while Khrushchev appreciated the difficulties and dangers in denouncing the cult of Stalin while attempting to hold on to its fruits, he was unable to devise a solution to the question of what would happen if the reformist message, the policy of de-Stalinization, the Thaw, or whatever else it was called, provoked within the Soviet system a backlash of unprecedented passion and anger. Khrushchev, to put it bluntly, was not prepared for the consequences of his own actions, as events in both Poland and Hungary would demonstrate. Perhaps one of his sole sources of comfort came from the fact that, as unprepared as he was for the consequences of his actions, the Western Allies were even less prepared for what would follow an apparently sealed Egyptian deal. The Suez Crisis is that other tumultuous event of 1956, and it was there that the British, French and Israelis cooperated to deliver a knockout blow against Egypt, then led by President Gamal Abdel Nasser. In the context of the bitter and bloody French colonial war in Algeria and of the British desire to remain at the superpower table, the decision to invade and seize the Suez Canal in league with Israel appeared to be a sensible choice. Yet what Anglo-French plotters failed to fully consider was the American angle, specifically what the Eisenhower administration would do or say once their conspiracy was brought to light. In the event, Military disaster would be twinned with political humiliation for the British and French, who were eventually forced to withdraw in the face of stiff American opposition. That British paratroopers were landing in Egypt at the same time Soviet tanks were crushing Budapest is another fascinating takeaway from this incredible year. The two major storylines, that of the Soviet troubles with life after Stalin and of the Western Road to the Suez Crisis, will be tackled separately but both storylines will converge at times. The sheer differences of the two narratives means it wouldn't really make sense for us to simply approach 1956 from a chronological point of view. Instead, it makes more sense to hit each story individually, and this I have attempted to do in two blocks. The first block of episodes will examine the Soviet experience, and the second will examine the Western Suez-related story. These will be marked in the feed as one point something if they happen to be the first part and two point something if they happen to relate to the second part. This structure will hopefully make everything clear when you're trying to track down individual episodes or follow along with the story, at least that's the plan. In a further bid to distinguish between parts one and two we have a different song as the track for each episode. In the first part, Gloomy Sunday by Paul Whiteman will serve as the purpose for getting us in the mood. When we move to part two, we'll be using another song with several credits and artists to its name. Lay Down Your Arms was released in 1956 by Ake Gerhard and Leon Langren, who penned the original Swedish version before it was adopted by the Cordettes in the United States, but I would argue the better version is by Anne Shelton in the UK. Shelton's version of the song is the one we'll be using because it did hold on to the number one spot for 14 weeks and it was somewhat looked down upon by the British government at the time since the song held its place during the course and aftermath of the Suez debacle. British leaders were concerned that the song would reduce morale among British soldiers and I suppose get them to lay down their arms but Shelton had sang to British soldiers during the Second World War so Really, her track record of patriotism probably spoke for itself. Because the Anglo-French angle will be a highly important one, we're going to take Shelton's version as our baseline. So that's 1956 in a nutshell, really. But what about our other major release, the PhD thesis series for patrons? Well, let's start with the beginning, the thesis title. Keeping with the tradition of all good thesis titles, mine begins with a quote. A fine subject to expatiate upon. And then, British foreign policy and the rhetoric of national honour, 1830-1880. Two things emerge from this which should give you a clue as to what we're going to be looking at. The first is the timeline. The juicy five decades between 1830-80 contained all manner of conflicts, confrontations and crises, and since we're talking about foreign policy, you'll know to expect a lot of talk about diplomacy during this period. But the second point is why I fear some of you may prefer to check out rather than check in to this Patreon series. We're not just talking about National Honour's impact on foreign policy, we're talking about the rhetoric which accompanied it. In other words, my focus isn't just that National Honour was a really important issue that had a major impact on British thinking and policy, I also suggest contemporaries were aware of this importance. They knew national honour was highly valued by the people, the politicians and the press and many of these contemporaries attempted to use national honour to their advantage by making use of certain arguments, phrases and terms. This use of language is where the rhetoric of honour comes in. Rhetoric comes in many forms, of course, but we have to remember that 50-year period since this was a time of great change, both in how parliamentary speeches were performed and delivered, and perhaps most importantly, the position of the newspaper press. If you think of British newspapers in the 19th century, you may be drawn to several questions. How many could even read them? Which were the most popular? Did any adopt a political position? All reasonable questions, which we will touch on, but of most importance to me was how the press treated national honour. Did they try to use national honour to argue for a certain policy, for instance, like war? Did it pressure the government in its use of national honour, or did it pressure the opposition? What tangible impact could this usage of national honour be said to have had? Similar questions can be directed towards politicians of the era, and as we're talking about rhetoric, I spent a lot of time looking at parliamentary debates. It was in those debates that the language of national honour was on full display, and you'd be amazed at the wide range of circumstances where national honour was invoked, both for foreign policies and for those at home. Certain figures were more adept at this strategy than others. One that looms large was Viscount Palmerston, who was politically active from the middle of the Napoleonic Wars until the time of his death in office as Prime Minister in 1865. So yes... Palmerston's shadow was clear in these tactics. He was not only mindful of how much national honor resonated with the public and the press and his colleagues, but he also was able to use this to his advantage. When Crisis confronted his stints as Foreign Secretary or Prime Minister, Palmerston was quick to point to national honor as justification for adhering to this or that policy. Now my point here isn't to discern sincerity in these tactics but to note the way language referencing national honour was used to justify or criticise or frame a certain policy, basically saying such and such a thing had to happen because national honour was at stake. Another example was Benjamin Disraeli, who you may remember from our examination of the Russo-Turkish War all the way back in Britain Goes to War. By that point of the late 1870s, Palmerston was long gone, but His long shadow was ever-present, and Disraeli seems to have drawn inspiration from the old master in how he crafted Britain's response to that conflict. Disraeli provided a new gloss to national honour at this time, bleating about British prestige in similar language to how Palmerston had pontificated about national honour. In this manner, Disraeli provided a kind of bridge from the old discussions of national honour and the newer iterations of honour itself, which were suffused with ideas like prestige and affected by growing trends of imperialism and jingoism. Certain behaviour was upheld as dishonourable, but even dishonourable behaviour could be excused in certain circumstances. When Spain delivered an insult to British honour in one instance, Palmerston asserted that because Britain could adopt an honourable forbearance, she didn't need to demand satisfaction from Madrid and escalate things to the point of war. Conversely, when Washington insulted Britain at sea in 1861 during the Trent affair, Palmerston pushed things to the brink of war because he believed, I would argue, that the circumstances were suitable and he used the rhetoric of national honour to make his case. This rhetoric emphasised that Britain could not let the insult go unanswered, and that British honour was at stake, and that war was better than dishonour. Yet even the masters could have off days. It's certainly interesting to me that Palmerston's presentation of national honour fell apart spectacularly in 1864, during the lesser-known and often misunderstood Schleswig-Holstein crisis, as Britain had seemingly pledged itself to Denmark's defence only to find it could not fulfil these obligations without incurring a terrible war against all of Germany. Now if you've listened to Bismarck rise, you'll note that Schleswig-Holstein was Bismarck's first war and he wasn't about to let anything stand in his way. Britain was effectively ostracised from this change in Europe because of its failure and Palmerston's deputy as Foreign Secretary, Lord John Russell, was roundly condemned for delivering empty threats and bluffs at Prussia's feet all of which Bismarck scoffed at before setting aside. Looking at the rhetoric again, the Tory opposition scorned the government for this failure, but Palmerston responded in Parliament by pointing out that Britain wasn't actually obliged to help Denmark when Denmark wouldn't help herself, and also making the worthwhile point that while the Tories were very happy to roast the government, they couldn't explain how they would fix things. In this way, national honour became not merely an idea or a belief system which most bought into, it was also a politically contested space, with the political factions in Parliament and outside of it offering their own views as to what national honour required, whether it had been forsaken and what they would do about it. Although we will be going through every section of this thesis from introduction to conclusion, I would recommend, again, listening to that episode I released where I laid out my PhD's central arguments in more detail. It's a good introduction to how we're going to approach all of this, and if you find yourself zoning out while listening to that episode, it's, well, it's it's probably a good sign you won't enjoy the thesis series we have planned here. Then again, though, curiosity is a powerful thing, and I understand just wanting to know what I've been doing over the last few years and how it all measures up. I would invite you to rejoin or repay attention to the Facebook group, since while it remains somewhat functional, I'll still be using that for discussions on these things. Got a question to ask about National Honour? Well, I'll do my best to answer it eventually there. That being said, we need to address how all this is going to work. I could just throw these chapters at you or break these chapters into shorter episodes and leave you to figure it out, but I want to do more than that. I feel very strongly about leaving the actual text of the thesis as it is and not adjusting it for audio purposes. That said though, there's no reason why I can't intervene before and after this text to prepare you for what's to come and circle back on what we've hopefully learned. What this looks like, I believe, is an intro from me and then the text and then some discussion afterwards. This way, if you just want the text, you can motor ahead and skip the end section which, well, generally I'll try and keep them fairly concise. With regards to the text of the thesis though, I should emphasize again that this thesis wasn't designed to be read aloud like this. By doing so, you'll likely miss the quotes I've inserted, and you'll certainly miss the footnotes which will provide more context, further reading, and occasionally fascinating excerpts of speeches which couldn't be included in the original text due to word count, Now, I'll be rectifying this to some extent by reading a few of these speeches in the episode's outro, but by and large, things may get a bit awkward, and not every quote will land as it should. I already know some of you struggle with how I present quotes as is. Some want to return to the quote-end-quote strategy, Another's others want me to just stop changing my tone of voice when I read them. Look guys, I'm always open to suggestions, but I'll try and make this as clear and enjoyable a listening experience as possible. Just remember, we're dealing with an imperfect script here, so go easy on me. Again, if you want to read along, you'll find the complete thesis text on Patreon eventually, and the scripts will be released alongside each episode in the Patreon page. I am really excited to see what you make of it, but above all I'm just happy to be back, in your ears on a weekly basis and back to doing what I love. This year will be a critical one for me and WDF, so I look forward to seeing you there. Monday the 8th of January is when the first episode of the Thesis series launches and on Thursday the 11th of January, 1956 officially takes over our regular feed. Expect other surprises as I settle back into this rhythm and we resurrect the prolific podcasting days of yore. Thanks so much for all you've done for the show so far, guys. I am Dr. Zach and this has been our new season introduction of When Diplomacy Fails. You are a wonderful history friend for listening and I'll be seeing you all soon.